The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Right now, you can get both Sprint's Unlimited plan and the iPhone XR with its amazing camera included for just $35 per month per line for five lines. All you need is approved credit and 24-month installment billing. No trade-in required. Visit a Sprint store, Sprint.com, or call 800-SPRINT-1. Phone $15 a month after monthly credit supplied within two bills. If canceled early, remaining balance due. Unlimited basic after 63020, pay $32 a month per line with auto pay. Data deprioritization during congestion. Speed maximums, use rules, and restrictions apply. for listening to Uncle Sam's Soccer Podcast, keeping you up to date with the latest in American soccer. And don't forget to subscribe. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of Uncle Sam's Soccer Podcast. I'm Stephen Jodder, and joining me is the one and only Armand Kafai. How we doing, Armand? We're doing good, man. It's getting the thick of the semester, but what can I say? I'm doing well, and soccer's starting back up, and I'm excited. I'm excited, man. Absolutely. We got a fantastic episode. The COO of the New York Cosmos, we've had him on before, Eric Stover, joins us. And then I spoke with Matt Beasler, Sporting KC defender. So you'll hear both of their voices on today's show. But before we get to any of that, Armand, we have a special announcement. But this Ooh. special announcement will come next week. So you got to right, see. To you're, you're you're giving cliffhangers to people now. Like, come on, like, come I have on. To. But yeah. next week we got a very special announcement that you listeners will want to absolutely know about because we're giving away something. So find out what. Yes. But Armand, before we get to Stover, the USSF election finished up. We've had a week to marinate on what happened. What are your overall thoughts on it? Man, you put me on the spot with these overall thoughts. I like it. I like it. But, Stephen, to be quite honest with you, I'm not surprised. I mean... I tweeted this out. If anyone was surprised, you've just been reading Twitter. You haven't been reading anything else, and you don't know what's going on. I, there was no surprise. I think people were hoping to be surprised, but there is no surprise. Carlos Codero winning it, I'm not surprised at all. I mean, when we're going when they're going through the election, you saw it was 30, 30, and then you saw the rest of the candidates get like 10, 10, like 1, 4%, 0. You, know, there was, you knew there was no chance at, at that point. And, yeah. It was it was not the best. The but go ahead, go ahead. I was the only thing I'm a little bit surprised is why did Kathy Carter run in the first place? Hmm, it's a good question. I'm not sure because because I, I don't, you're right. I, I just didn't feel like she wanted the job. Yeah, I, no, I, I just, agree. 
it's not a disrespect to her and and her association with some. She did a wonderful job over there. Obviously, she's, she's still doing a wonderful job. I mean, look how much money some has made. I mean, she is an an outstanding businesswoman. I just don't think she wanted the the presidency. I I just I, just, I feel like she I mean, who can blame her, man? I, I exactly. I, wouldn't, I mean, want I wouldn't it. want it. I wouldn't want it plain and simple. If it's if the things are as it says, an unpaid position. You're coming in as basically like a glorified volunteer. Uh, you have to, you know, deal with all these issues. You just missed the World Cup, which is probably the most colossal failure in U.S. soccer history. Right. And you have to deal with all that on an unpaid basis? No, I, I, I agree. But it is what it is. Listeners, tell us what your thoughts are. Tweet us at UncSamSoccerPod. Tell us why you think Kathy Carter ran. And what were your overall thoughts on the election? But up next... It's the one and only Eric Stover. Join us back on the show. A guest of ours previously, it's the man, Eric Stover, CEO, COO of the New York Cosmos. Eric, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? Doing really good. Um, but it's been about a week since the one of the biggest events in U.S. soccer this year, which happened last week, so early in the year. Obviously, the USSF soccer election. Carlos Cordero, after three rounds, was, a local, uh, was elected president. Uh, what are your thoughts on his election? Um, well, I think in, in hindsight, um, it was inevitable, um, you know, just the way the delegates and the, the weighted voting works. Um, I think it was a, a huge mountain to climb for any outsider to win. It, it was kind of funny to talk about Kyle Martino or Hope Solo or mm-hmm. Eric Winalda as outsiders, but, um, Really, the only chance, I think, was if that group of six candidates had really become one with one unified voice, then maybe there was a chance. But just the way the, way the delegates work and the weighted system, um, it was almost um, a foregone conclusion. Uh, I had thought Kathy Carter was going to win, but I think what, what changed that analysis was the Athlete Council which gets 20% of the vote voting as a block. And that 20% going to Carlos Cordero um, changed everything. Um, had it gone to Kathy, um, she would have won in the first first round. Um, then, you know, with, with Carlos, he had a bit of a lead. And second second round through, he, he had an even bigger lead, and it became obvious, I think, to folks at MLS that uh, – uh, they needed to get behind uh, Carlos's uh, direction, and they threw their votes that way. And we have a new president now. Were you surprised when the group of six didn't combine, or I guess throw support towards one after the first round? Um, well, I. To be fair, there was a lot of discussion leading up to the election, and you know, I'm right. not a. I wasn't directly involved, uh, but I heard uh, from the 
for the six participants you know, in the fallout the next day, you know, leading up to the election, um, you know, sort of the details behind that. And I think there was analysis bef- before the election that they, do, they did need to come together, that they weren't going to independently be able to carry the day. Uh, I think some folks pay too much attention to polls, um, even though many people understood that polls meant nothing in this. They weren't polling the delegates. They were mm-hmm. polling fans. Mm-hmm. So you could just throw all that out. It was just garbage data. But some people, I think, believed in, in that a little bit. They believed in the, the chance that, you know, the the far um, extreme change candidates were going to fall off and that the status quo would fall off and maybe they'd be left standing like a Abraham Lincoln's election. And um, and that it was foolish analysis, uh, definitely in hindsight, because it's a weighted system. And if you add up what Don Garber himself or MLS could pull together, you've got the MLS's percentage, which I think was like 14, 15%. They had a lot of influence over the NWSL because they have owners that own those teams. The USL with that relationship, uh, the, the votes that they have through adult council and the influence over the athlete council, that there was really no way an outsider was going to overcome that, the, the weighted system. And so you couldn't possibly wait for votes to, to flip-flop. So I, the, this is a long way of getting to your, your question, which is, yeah, they, they, they met, they, they spoke about it. A lot of stuff I saw reported was completely inaccurate, and I heard it verified from four different candidates mm. what really happened in that room. Um, and so it's unfortunate the way things went down and fingers were pointed in unfair directions. But, you know, it's, it was a messy election, and I guess those kinds of things are going to happen. Do you mind elaborating on what happened in that room when the candidates got together? Uh, well, the way it was explained to me was they weren't necessarily all together at the same time. Maybe at, at points they were, um, but they were working on a message of support of each other and the idea of either dropping out before the election starts or what's the process of dropping out. Um, and there were more extreme viewpoints um, and more conservative viewpoints and, you know, what went in the language. And there was a lot of um, frustration between um, different candidates. The idea that Eric Winalda uh, sabotaged the whole thing was completely not true. And I heard that from candidates not named Eric Winalda. So, um, you know, why it came out like that, uh, why there were journalists in the room, during conversations and, and how things respond, I, I don't know. But again, it, you know, people, and this is, was the fundamental problem of the change movement, was you had egos and points of view that simply were not aligned, uh, never could get aligned, uh, but that was the only chance they had of winning. Had they all come together Right. rallied around one candidate. And I don't know who that would have been because I think because of the personalities, um, it was probably impossible. But let's just say everybody rallied around Kyle Martino as, as an example. Um, 
he would have come in around 30% on the first go-around, maybe even a little higher if people had responded positively to that kind of uh, move by the group. And if if you're at roughly a third and you've got Carter and uh, Cordero at a third, then, then you could possibly see that the athlete council may swing towards a change candidate like Kyle. Um, because as I understand that, that, there were a lot of voices within the athlete council that, that were pulling for a former player and not an administrator. So um, in that block, that weighted block of 20%, um, in this particular election really decided everything. So if a change candidate could have gotten it, that block of 20% towards them, then, then they could have inched over the line. Uh, but, you know, that's all hindsight. That's a, a very narrow path that if uh, you had more, everybody had more experience with, they would have recognized. Um, I think, they, you know, people were applying um, old math to new math, and it, it just didn't work out. So now that the election is just all done and dusted, Carlos Codero is the president of U.S. Soccer, and I had called him on a preview show a, I guess, Kind of change guy, kind of status quo guy, kind of like a like a good drink for those who are voting. And I think that's why uh, me and Steven thought that he was going to win the election prior uh, to it happening. But do you see any sort of change uh, coming? Uh, I know he mentioned he wants to bring a general manager for both the women's and the men's side and delegating the soccer duties to them. But I mean, outside of that, do you think there'll be? Do you think it'll be more change or more similar to? Uh, how Gulati ran the USSF? Um, I, you know, it sounds like a cop-out, cop but we're going to have to wait and see. Mm-hmm. I do think uh, technical directors or GMs responsible for the men's and women's team is critical. Uh, some greater attention to the day-to-day um, you know, real soccer issues is essential. Um, you know, we, we've had a lot of problems over the last few years on the men's side. It's not that we didn't qualify for this World Cup, which is massive, but we didn't qualify for the last two Olympics either. And in that case, you've got young players for the most part, many of them that are still amateurs that lose out on very, very critical developmental opportunities. Um, so this has been going on for years on the men's side. On the women's side, I think you've got to worry that the rest of the world is starting to catch up, that uh, Title IX and our culture helped uh, women's soccer get way ahead of the curve. Um, but that's not the case anymore, and I hope uh, that there's a technical director on the women's side that's pay- that will pay greater attention uh, to developmental issues that they need because – you know, again, we just had this advantage of culturally and with Title IX that w- women had opportunities. Um, that, but there isn't the structure that they need on, on the women's and girls' side, particularly on the girls' side. You know, we've got a developmental acap- academy for the boys, but you know, how much money is going into the girls' side? It's almost all pay-to-play. At least on the boys' side, you've got uh, MLS teams that, that – are in the DA that don't charge. So um, I think on the girls' side, there's a lot of risk. But really what matters um, for, for Carlos and for my opinion as a 
putting on a completely objective hat that he's going to address the conflicts of interest with Soccer United marketing in U.S. soccer. There's no doubt that when it was started in the early 2000s, that without the assistance of the Federation and and those broadcast rights um, being bundled with MLS, that MLS probably would have folded. I think some was absolutely critical in saving the league um, in bringing greater uh, opportunity to MLS owners, greater value. Um, it's really built itself into a great business, um, and it's a big part of the franchise valuation for MLS teams. So in that case, it succeeded. But it also has led to, to conflicts, and, and you can't objectively analyze that and say that that's not, that's not true. Um, and Carlos has publicly stated that, and it was a big part of his response to the Athletes' Council. Now, the reason I say let's wait and see is he's got to follow through on that. What's he going to do with it um, moving forward so it's fair for everybody else trying to develop second, third, fourth division teams in this country because at the moment it's it's almost impossible to make money on the second division level. And I, I attribute a lot of that to the consolidation of control through some. And that actually is a perfect segue into what I was uh, planning on asking. Where do the lower leagues, such as you mentioned the second, third, fourth divisions, where do they go from here uh, after the election? I don't know. It's a, it's a very good question. Um, obviously, the NASL has lawsuits that are that are out there that have to be uh, run through the courts. Where the NASL is waiting on a, an appeal uh, to the preliminary injunction, and so everybody understands uh, preliminary injunction isn't really you know, into the the meat of of the claims. It's really a short-term stopgap that allow, that would allow the NASL to continue with second division sanctioning. It is not a, an analysis of the facts. Um, that's going to take a long time, probably 18 months to two years to get through the process. Um, and, and so some people I see, at least on Twitter, are treating that as if there's a victory there for or a loss for either side. That's you know, there's, there's tactical advantages um, if depending on which way it goes. But really, there's a lot that's got to be discussed. Um, and I think the, the claims that NASL makes goes to a lot of the heart of the business of the sport in this country. Um, the transfer market, solidarity payments, um, television money, just, uh, you know, what markets, tampering in other markets, uh, no promotion or relegation and, and the inevitable chaos that that creates. Um, these lawsuits go to all that, and all of those are critical to your financial viability as a second or third division team. Eric, you just spoke of promotion and relegation. Is that something that y'all discuss continuously among to say within the league of NESL or even with USL? Uh, to my knowledge, there's never been a conversation between the NESL and USL about a promotion and relegation, to my knowledge. But it wouldn't be the, the kind of thing I would handle. Um, 
There's been discussion, and everybody would love to see it, and despite what some people think, again, on Twitter, uh, there's not really anybody in the NASL that's saying, well, the Cosmos won the uh, NASL in 2015, so we should have been promoted. Um, We know that there's a lot of work that's got to be done in our pyramid to make promotion and relegation, the going down, feasible. And that, in my opinion, is is years of planning and preparation. Um, you can't have teams playing in high school f- uh, football stadiums with football lines playing in the first division. Um, so there's a lot of infrastructure that's got to be worked on. Uh, I think all of, if you could wave a magic wand, promotion or relegation would would start to address all the things I discussed before. Revenue generation, uh, the transfer market, TV interest, attendance, everything would be impacted positively with promotion and relegation, in my opinion. Uh, The thing that wouldn't be is franchise valuation in MLS. Um, But I I also see those issues as all independent um, challenges that have to be addressed. And if you can address all of those things in a way that leads to promotion and relegation, then I think the sport will be better off. You, you talked about stadiums and infrastructure to the sport. Is the stadium aspect the most important when it comes to infrastructure? Uh, in many in many ways, it is. Um, particularly this sport in this country, I think. It, well, really, any any team. Um, in professional sports, they want their own venue. Um, it's one of the economic engines of a of a team. Uh, so you see the cycle of how things work in the United States for all sports. Many arenas, and st- stadiums are turned da- torn down after twenty to thirty years um, because the business has changed and you've got to get more money out of the building. Um, so that's one thing that MLS has excelled at. The last 10 years in particular, um, the the picture of an MLS game in Red Bull Arena or in Kansas City or the new stadium in L.A. or Orlando, that is dramatically better than it was 10, 15 years ago. Mm. Um, and And that's absolutely essential. You get higher naming rights for venues like that. Your value per seat goes up. There's clubs. There's... Um, there's premium, uh, the sponsorship value uh, for your secondary tertiary sponsors is significantly higher when you're delivering that first class game day experience. So it's absolutely essential. And then when you roll it down to second, third division, you look at the venues that many teams are playing in, it's not even close to professional. Uh, or if it's professional, it's for us, for example, we're playing in a minor league baseball stadium. So, uh, you know, the idea of smaller, more market-appropriate, but soccer-specific stadiums that are scalable is an essential issue for helping second division move forward. Um, And it, to to date, hasn't really been addressed that effectively except for in a handful of examples. And just out of curiosity, Eric, which uh, stadium slash venues do you think are the most, uh, I guess you could say, MLS-ready, quote-unquote, in terms of infrastructure uh, within the second and third divisions? Second and third division? Well, definitely San Antonio. 
Um, they did a nice job. That that building there is like four or five years old. That feels like a League One stadium in England, um, and it's scalable. There's land there uh, in it. You can build on top of that and tar- take it from I think it's like nine or ten thousand to fifteen thousand to twenty thousand, relatively easy, easy, relatively affordably. Um, and so I think that's probably the best example. Um, you know, most everything else that I can think of is a compromise in some form or fashion, whether it's the playing surface, uh, whether it's the, you know, a track around the field. Uh, there are some great examples. Cincinnati obviously is packing them in every week, but that's a college football stadium. That's not um, something that's a, a good long-term plan for that organization they eventually have to have their own building um and i'm sure if they get expansion into mls they'll get their own um but at the moment you know we're as a country we're adapting abandoned minor league baseball stadiums or partnering with existing minor league baseball stadiums and i I would love to see more purpose-built five to ten thousand seat stadiums that uh, markets can grow with, and you know you can imagine a time where Detroit City is, you know, doing the five to ten thousand a game. They get promoted up through merit on the field, and they're in a venue that can be expanded to fifteen or so. And you know that that's a great story. It does the size of the stadium. If you have twenty five thousand seats in Dallas and only five thousand people are going, it, that doesn't mean anything. To the quality of the the club, so marrying those those uh, pro, pro, professional league standards to the reality of this country, I think, is something that's got to get done better. Eric, is there's there's some sort of risk behind that? I mean, we saw that. Uh, well, obviously, you know that we saw that in Rochester with the Rhinos. I mean. They made a stadium because they thought they were going to get into MLS, and then they didn't, so to scale back the plans, and now it's vacant. So how would you, I guess, try to tell teams that hey, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's a maybe not as risky of, as an investment as you think if they point to like the Rochester Rhino example in terms of uh, investing in infrastructure. Right. So it's good, really good example, and you know the pro rel guys would be <laughs> screaming into the phone. Right now about, <laughs> well, if there was promotion, they could have earned their way up and it would have been a good invention uh, investment. Um, and, and there's merit to that argument as well, but I think it, it's gotta be, if you're a second division team, you have to be responsible, um, and, and, and grow with the sport. So the, the cosmos are probably one of the worst examples of that. We were really aggressive five years ago, our owner at the time, Seamus O'Brien, had a vision. Um, it wasn't necessarily about promotion and relegation, but he did care about that. It was more about um, building the best stadium in the United States, in the New York market, um, putting the best team on the field in the New York market, and building out a television network. It was super ambitious and would have cost... Uh, half a billion to a billion dollars over time, and at the end of the day, we were we were undercapitalized and weren't able to pull it off. Uh, so it could have happened, uh, but it didn't. 
So now that 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 has come and gone, I think the the more prudent approach is is looking at modular stadiums in an area that you can you can grow in, and also diversifying your investment. So whether it's um, having partners with businesses that that make sense, sponsors that make sense, that are interested in helping you grow, or it's a real estate transaction, or you're running. Uh, use soccer programs because you have the land, or it's a real estate development. There's a lot of uh, old stadiums in England where they have, you know, the north-south, east-west stands, and then it's not one continuous stadium. And they filled in the corners with apartment buildings and hotels and things. And so it became the real estate became almost as important as the team on the field. So I think diversification is is really important. But what has changed and changed significantly in the last ten years is you can build a modular stadium for four or five million dollars that would serve your needs right away, as as they're doing in Phoenix, and could be something that you could grow as you transition into a bigger club without you know, writing a two hundred million dollar check. Eric, there's been quite a bit of a discussion on the future of NESL. Where are we at with that discussion? To be honest, I, I don't know as of this moment right now. Obviously, as we discussed before, the, the court cases are, are critical. Um, and you know the, the current owners and the potential expansion teams have to get on the same page with what the future might look like. And that's really challenging, particularly when you step back and say, well, how do I make money in this, in, in lower division? What's the future look like? And, you know, for us, like the Cosmos, we we have an owner that just loves the game and, and I think understands that it's unlikely that it'll make money, but it also can't be just the abyss of losses. There's got to be a way to to get things under the control financially. Um, and so I think the, the potential expansion teams and the existing owners need to get on the same page, understand what the, the league should look like, how it should be structured, and how it goes forward. I, and I know those conversations are ongoing, they're active. Uh, just right now, uh, at the moment, I don't know what it'll be come August. So, how important is the Cosmos to that New York soccer scene? Obviously, you had NYCFC come in a couple of years ago, and then the Red Bulls, who have been there since, or they were at the Metro Stars, and then they they changed their names to the Red Bulls, but they've been there since MLS has been created. Right. Well, I, you know, I've been on both sides of this. So right. I was the managing director at the at the Red Bulls for a few years, um, and also. Um, I managed Shine Stadium, and, and that's really how I fell in love with the sport while I was at Giant Stadium. It was the Metro Stars. We had, you know, 15, 20 games a year. Um, and we started to, to do a lot of major international games. Um, but at the time, so I, I didn't know really anything about the Cosmos. Having grown up in rural Pennsylvania, I started working at Giant Stadium, and I'm hearing all these these stories about Pelé and Mick Jagger and um, Canalia and Beckenbauer and 
you know, parties in the stadium club in Studio 54. And this is from all my mentors who <laughs> lived it and, and partied alongside those guys and gals. Um, so I, you know, became more in tune with the sport. We started doing major, major club games. Um, Manchester United against Roma, I think it was. We sold 30,000 tickets the day of the game, almost sold out the stadium. And I, I really started to understand the, the sport. And, um, you know, I heard all those Cosmo stories. And then eventually, a few years down the road, I end up at at Red Bull. And what I would hear a lot from fans was, you'll never be the Cosmos, you'll never be the Cosmos. Um, and, you know, it was a cross the bear for the Metro Stars slash Red Bulls, and I think probably still is for them. Um and, you know, I think we've done a lot as the new Cosmos the last five years. We've um, done some very compelling things internationally. And, of course, we've gone head-to-head, toe-to-toe with the NYCFC and Red Bull. And it's meant a lot to soccer fans. Um, it, the one thing I'd say is I was hoping that the soccer market would have grown more over the last five years, that uh, fans would have been more supportive and more uh loyal to those clubs. And, and of course, there are examples of, you know, people that are really passionate about it. Um, but the, you know, the attendance struggles for all three teams are, are real. Um, I think the numbers were down pretty significantly, at least from what I could tell, watching games on TV with NYCFC. Our issues have been well documented. Um, Red Bull tends to go through spikes and dips. Um, and I would have hoped by now, after five years of these teams really competing, that things would have been more consistent for everybody. But it's a really saturated market. It's uh, There's a lot to do, and it, all the kids play soccer, so um, they're often burned out come 7 o'clock on a Saturday night. Uh, but I do think having an independent club in New York is really, really important, and I hope we can keep it going. What was the craziest thing that you heard about the Cosmos? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've spent a lot of time with Shep Messing, and he's got some stories. Um, let me think. You're putting me on the spot. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's got to be the, the Studio 54 stuff, and, and not, you know, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll stuff. That time in New York City that was probably the most popular team and the most popular athletes. And that includes the New York giants, the New York Yankees. It was a phenomenon. Um, and it was the right group of guys at the right time where that New York party scene was, was real. And you had global superstars and New York is so cosmopolitan. It just, it all came together Mm. so perfectly. Um, and, you know, the the evidence is there. I, I, I had pictures in my office of the opening couple weeks of Giant Stadium in 77 for a Giants game, and it, it wasn't sold out. But there were Cosmos games that year that that outdrew the Giants. And, and the Yankees were averaging in the late 70s probably 25,000 people, 30,000 people a game. I mean, it's a really, really compelling story and a unique time in the city. Why this is something I've always wondered. Why ha- didn't say the Cosmos tried to get an expansion bid, 
years ago, obviously maybe even before NYCFC, but try to be that second New York club in MLS? Well, that was a, a previous ownership group. I think they took it very seriously and looked at it closely. Um, to be honest, they, they couldn't justify the $100 million expansion tag, especially with the challenges of building a stadium in the city. And I and when Seamus O'Brien came in, he had a different plan, which I've already outlined. He had, uh, you know, the the idea of bringing the Cosmos back to the level they were in the '70s, in the late '70s, and he didn't think you could do that within the single entity structure in MLS. And you know, so for NYCFC, I think. City Football Group is probably the only investor that would have made that decision um, you know, five years ago to invest in MLS. From what I heard, uh, the folks from Qatar that own PSG had backed away. Um, and, you know, I think for City Football Group and what they're about, it's not necessarily the soccer on the field. There's a lot of other things. It's, you know, they're ultimately part of the royal family of, Abu Dhabi, and they have they want to diversify their investments beyond oil and energy, um, and sort of change the reputation of the UAE globally. Um, so mm-hmm. for those reasons, um, they decided to make the decision, and they've done that in Australia and other places. Um, but you know now they struggle with their their stadium challenges, and it's a, not an easy. Thing to do, and if they ever get it done, it's probably going to cost six hundred million dollars, which is three times what Red Bull Arena costs. And um, for people looking to make money on the sport, um, you can't do that. But we'll see. We'll see what they're able to pull off. And um, like I said, they have. It's not just ROI for City Football Group, so I think it, it made sense for them. So do you see uh, NYCFC just staying in a Yankee Stadium for the foreseeable future? Uh, well, there's nowhere else to go. And right. I've been in this market a long time and <laughs> been everywhere. Um, and so <laughs> there is nowhere else to go. Um, and to get from concept to ribbon cutting is probably eight years. Uh, so I think they're going to be at Yankee Stadium. It could be done faster, but I think in this country, on average, from from concept to ribbon cutting, it's eight years. Um, so I'd be very, very surprised um, if it happens faster than that, but it can. Um, I think from what I hear, they've got two or three options. Um, depend, and they have a lot of very influential people within their organization um, that can move mountains within... New York City, um, so possibly could be done within five years, um, but I think it probably takes longer than that. I, I want to transition to another part of the game, the women's game, which you actually recently tweeted about when you uh, quote tweeted an article, and you said it's a real issue. While they're far from perfect, the U.S. has led the way in more equitable sporting systems for women, especially soccer. The rest of the world is still catching up, no doubt, and that's something that I have hammered and Stephen have hammered multiple times that while our team is really good right now, it seems like there's been a lot more investments going on and people are starting to take notice, starting to invest more and more in the women's game. And I was on Twitter and I saw the Utah Royals, which used to be the Kansas City team, 
which are owned by the same people who own the RSL. Uh, they were showing off the locker room. They were giving cars to the players. They were fully giving fully furnished apartments. And it, it, it kind of seemed like a little change was uh, going on within women's soccer. But I want to ask you, outside of uh, equality in terms of pay, which I think should happen, it's given almost, what improvements uh, need to be made uh, in terms of the women's game? Well, I, I think the risk that the women's game has right now is, um, in England in particular, the big clubs are investing in, in women's soccer. Um, and so they're they're attracting the best players from around the world because they already have the infrastructure there. Um, the the owners have deep pockets and, and couldn't afford to lose money on women's soccer in the short term. Um, and, and that type of investment, which women's soccer has never really had, um, there's never been a, a real proper pro league that can compete internationally with what they're paying um, consistently. Whenever it's been tried, it's, it's ultimately faltered and failed. The NWSL has been around for a little while now, but they're still on, on shaky ground, and what the players are getting paid pales in comparison to opportunities they have internationally. Um, so I think that risk is very real. I think a lot of the world is caught up to um, equality, not just in pay, certainly probably have it, nobody's caught up in pay, I think maybe Norway pays men's and women's national team players the same. But other than that, there's a long way to go. But they're at least giving uh, greater opportunities. I think what's happened in the United States is it was part of our culture in, in Title IX with college sports. Um, it gave a real pathway for girls to play the game, keep playing the game, come up through high school, um, you know, participate in, in clubs and academies, get a college scholarship, you know, that whole uh, infrastructure that naturally exists in this country was good enough to make us the best in the world. We're now going to start competing with countries that have uh, billionaires invested in, in soccer, football, um, that are building, building out academies where the, where the kids aren't having to pay to play and, you know, they're treating it very much like they would the men's team. So I think uh, as this, the field levels globally, um, we're, we're just going to have tighter, tougher competition uh, where we didn't, haven't had for the last 20 years. So that, that's the risk. I think U.S. soccer should be paying a lot of attention to that, figuring out what they can do on a youth level and not just rely on uh, our culture to develop them, develop the players. And, it, and the funny thing is, when you sit down and talk about this stuff, the, the irony is not lost on me because we could talk about the culture of soccer being great for women in this country, but it's it's bad for men. Um, so there's a, clearly a disconnect there and a lot of work that needs to be done by the Federation. Do you see, if there's no changes to this women's game, like you see with the men's game, where uh, the better leagues are, say, in Europe? Uh, yeah, I think, I just think the money that flows through, um, the big clubs in Europe that invest in women's soccer, they can sustain losses greater than owners can here in the United States. Um, and we benefit again from our culture of, of women's sports 
in 330 million people in this country. And um, so we will always be competitive in women's soccer. They are young girls, and my, my daughter is five, turning six soon, and, and she, she plays soccer, and very soon she'll, she'll identify her heroes. Um, that culture will always exist, so we, I believe, will always be a threat to win the, the Women's World Cup or the Women's Olympic gold. Uh, but it's going to be tougher and tougher year year over year as the rest of the world catches up. Absolutely. And Eric, thank you for joining us on the show today. We know how we do it over here. We have a shameless plug. Go ahead and plug away where you can find your opinions and all that good stuff. Yeah, I've, uh, I've, I'm on Twitter a lot, probably more than I should be, but um, <laughs> you can find me at Eric Stover NYC. Um, E-R-I-K, Stover, NYC. Um, yeah, and don't write hateful things. <laughs> there you go. Well, Eric, it's, it's always a pleasure speaking with you. You always provide great insight and a, a different perspective on the game as you obviously are in NASL and you've been with the, the top division with MLS. So it's wonderful speaking with you. Thanks, guys. I enjoyed it. And it's always good to talk to an executive who has been at different aspects of the sport. He was 2010 MLS Executive of the Year at Red Bulls. Now he's with the Cosmos. Brings an insight that I don't think we're going to find elsewhere. No, I agree. And it gives us a perspective. And he's been around. He's been around, to be honest with you. I really was interested by the whole Rochester Rhinos thing because it's so fascinating. I mean, a team that... Why? No, no, no. But why do you think that doesn't get more coverage? Why don't? Why are we talking in a national? Because media? we don't. Because we don't. We don't care, Stephen. I'll be honest with you. People don't care that the Rochester Rhinos won a 1999 U.S. Open Cup. You want to know why they don't care? Because they have short-term history, uh, short-term memory in terms of uh, soccer in America. I mean, what we talk about the Cosmos. People barely know who the Cosmos are for some reason. No, yeah, no one globally, them. they're huge. Globally, they're huge. Exactly. We don't go back. We don't go back in history. And the rhinos are almost a beautiful cautionary tale of what's going to happen potentially if, let's say, a Sacramento or Cincinnati doesn't get that MLS bid. What's going to happen? You can't go up right now in the system. You cannot go up. So what's going to happen? Well, don't, are you going to end up? But here's here's a here's something that we need to note. We talked about infrastructure with Stover and how important. Uh, having the infrastructure of a soccer-specific stadium is to the sport. Let's not forget, USL has, has I guess, a law or a rule in place that everybody must have a soccer-specific stadium by 2020. That's two years away. Like, yeah, There's no way. Well, there's no way. It'd be interesting to see what they do, but there's a mandate that you have to have a soccer-specific stadium. You see Louisville... Right now, in the works of building a stadium that's 10,000, where they have averaged about 9,000 fans, they're building a 10,000-seat stadium, uh, stadium, and then they're hoping to get an MLS bid. 
and there's mm-hmm. expansion plans to that stadium to fit 20,000. And that's the route I think people need to look at. What It's like what, Sac, uh, what San Antonio has done and also what Louisville is going to do is that let's build one for 10,000. And if there needs to be more, we'll expand and make sure you have room to expand. That is the right way to go about these things. I think these small, these smaller – in my opinion, I don't think promotion relegation would work. I just want – if there aren't – as many soccer-specific stadiums. Well, you know what I mean? You have to have the stadiums before you can implement promotion relegation. Yeah, That's I agree. That's my viewpoint. You have and, to have and the infrastructure. I guess the reverse argument to that would be once you implement that – if you say you're going to implement that system, it gives teams more incentive to start building those stadiums. Well, that's so, I mean, the thing. That's a, you that's have, a whole, yeah. yeah, it's a chicken-the-egg conversation, but the conversation should be like, okay, well, let's plan for promotion relegation in 12 years. Gives clubs the chance to, okay, well – if we don't get an MLS bid, we have the chance of going up. We're going to work on our academy. We're going to work on grassroots. And in five years, seven years' time, we're going to build a stadium that's going to fit 12,000, 15,000, and then we'll see what happens. I don't know. The problem is each market's different. And Yep, exactly. It's, it's so hard to tell. You know what? Good segue here. One great market with U.S. soccer is Kansas City. Kansas City. Oh, same time? Yes. I mean, Kansas City. They used, just, to, they used to be a mess. Oh. If you think about it, they used to be awful. Even though their jerseys are kind of sick now, like nostalgically, they used to be a mess. The KC oh. Wizards at Arrowhead, they're on the verge of being contracted. I'm sure it was between KC and Dallas. Yeah. KC, Dallas, or my or Miami or Tampa Bay. And Miami, Tampa Bay took the axe, and Dallas and KC have become. Well, KC is miles better than Dallas. Well, in terms of off, uh, I would say like on and off the I've field, had... on and off the field. Casey's won a cup. They've won three U.S. Open Cups since 2012. They have a brand new facility, millions of dollars where the national team can train. It's Sporting Kansas City looks like a professional soccer club. FC Dallas look like a mess sometimes. <laughs> no, it looks like it's it's high school how they they treat their players sometimes or how they don't reach out to the community sporting kansas city has that feel i had the opportunity to sit down with matt beasler to talk about some of the issues uh with sporting kansas city off the field he talks about the fans we talked about the u.s men's national team and we talked about the upcoming seasons real fascinating says some great stuff take a listen me right now is Sporting Kansas City defender Matt Beasler. Matt, how's it going? It's going well. How are you? Doing great. Matt, season's coming up here very shortly. How are you feeling so far? Yeah, feeling good. It's it's uh, it's always a long off season. So uh, it's great to get get started. We're down in Arizona right now. Uh, got some new faces. Uh, but yeah, at this point in the season, there's uh, a lot of excitement. Have you been able to walk through that new training facility y'all got? Yes, we have. We Before we left for Arizona, we spent five or six days in Kansas City, uh, you know, getting some physicals done and a couple of days of training, and it's incredible. It is, uh, it's hard to put into words how nice it is. Matt, last season y'all won the U.S. Open Cup, the club's third since 2012, posted one of the best defenses in the 